listening to Life on the Margins, an urban native experience. And I'm your host, Brianna Mazzolini Blanchard. Our podcast centers indigenous voices and the voices of other marginalized community members and what we experience every day. In this episode, I sit down with Don Knickerbocker, an amazing mentor to me, the board president for our organization, the Urban Native Collective, and an indigenous mother. We discuss what indigenous motherhood means, how it's been impacted by colonialism, and a number of other spicy topics. You're really going to love this one, so let's jump into it. Well, hi, Don. Welcome. I'm so glad that we get this time together um, to have you on our podcast to discuss Indigenous motherhood. Um, so I wanted to give you a little bit of time to introduce yourself as you might uh, with a group of people. Uh, our audience is growing, which is very exciting. <laughs> yes. Hello. Hello, hello. I am so excited to be here and especially be here with you, Brie, because oh, we are growing friendships and um, yeah, it's such a great conversation to have. So hello, everybody. My name is Dawn Knickerbocker. I belong to the Anishinaabe people from White Earth Nation called Gawababaginakag in our language, enrolled in the Minnesota Chippewa tribe from the Otter Tail Pillager Band of Indians. And I currently live in Ohio on the land of the Shawnee and Miami people, uh, along with many, many other nations that call this land home. And so I, um, as an Ojibwe woman, an Anishinaabekwe, I consider myself a guest in uh, on this land. And I just want to honor uh, the ancestors that have stewarded all of the plants and water and animal um, relatives here for so many generations. So thank you so much for having me. I'm yes. so excited. Yes, I'm so excited to have you here. And thank you so much for honoring our land. Um, I also live here in Cincinnati. So um, we're, we're very close to each other, even though an hour feels kind of far away. Um, but I'm so excited uh, as a mother, as an Indigenous woman, to talk to you about Indigenous motherhood and um, I know we're going to hit on some like pretty spicy <laughs> topics today. Yes. Um, so excited, uh, you know, just to put that out there to our audience that we uh, we're going to we're going to talk about some things that, um, you know, a little bit of spicy topics. But uh, yeah. so if you have like sensitive ears, maybe yes. <laughs> you don't want to hear about this. I don't know. <laughs> yes. Yes. Uh, fair warning to our audience. <laughs> um, but yeah, you know. I, I've already shared with our audience that you're a mother, but but if you would tell us a bit about maybe your family and uh, a little bit about or a lot about uh, how <laughs> you were raised and sort of set the scene for um, how you might approach some of these different things that we talk about today. Yes, yes, I'm so excited to share. Um, so, uh, as I had mentioned before, that I belong to the Anishinaabe people, um, and motherhood is like a manifestation of like feminine power in Ojibwe culture. And I grew up with my mother, who is a white woman of European descent and specifically Danish. So she has long ties to um, her Danish ancestors and her father, his name is Hoot. And he even um, spoke the language um, 
and they can trace their family back to many, many, many generations. And my father is Anishinaabe from White Earth Nation. And so I was raised by a non-Native mother. And that really impacted who I am and kind of my reconnection story. And it helped it. And then I have four children of my own. I have four sons um, that are alive. And then I have had two children that were not alive, um, that never made it to um, take their first breath. And so I've had like a lot of other children that have come in and out of my life Mm. um, that I have nurtured and that I have given life to. And so that is kind of part of my story in Indigenous motherhood is my relationship with my own mother, Mm. my relationship with being a mother and assuming that role. And I think I shared with you yesterday, Bree, that there was a period of time in my life that started in my early 30s where I spent around seven and a half years in some form of pregnancy, sure. uh, breastfeeding, or both at the same time. And there was one time in particular that I was breastfeeding two children plus pregnant with another. Oh my gosh. And it's so, like... I have felt the like physical experience of life giving um, so much so that it like drained me quite a bit. Mm. So I've been in all different phases. And right now I feel so fortunate because I am in the period of time in my life. Um, Western people call it menopause and I call it my, my next phase mm. of of the Onigernad, um, which is like, there's no simple independent word for um, motherhood in Ojibwe or Ojibwe Moan. Um, and it's um, this word that's kind of used by some older speakers. And it's um, kind of like um, how we just continue on in a fulfillment of our ability to um, give life yeah. and support life. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that. That's uh, it's so interesting. Um, I myself am a mother and uh, my indigeneity stems from my mother's side and my father is uh, actually Sicilian. Um, that's why my last name is Mazzolini. <laughs> um, it's ah. very, yeah, it's very <laughs> Italian last name. And so to be this like mixed race indigenous person who's um, you know, really trying to understand indigenous motherhood as I am a mother and trying to navigate that with my seven-year-old. And I only have, you know, one son, but um, things still feel very fresh and new. I'm not nearly as uh, experienced in motherhood as someone, you know, much older than me who has like four sons or, you know, (laughs) something like that. So I have a lot, a lot to learn. And um, it's so nice to draw that parallel with you regarding, you know, that uh, mixed identity and um, kind of understanding from, um, or just like trying to understand motherhood from my own mother, who I have a very different relationship with and how that can really impact, um, you know, our understanding of motherhood. And, um, you know, you mentioned that you spent you know, a period of your life where like all you were doing was mothering, whether (laughs) breastfeeding or pregnant or whatever that might look like. And, 
it's um, you know our, our our Western world, our colonized world, kind of um, you know they they put us in this silo of like you're only a mother, mm-hmm. and um, they uh, you know put all of these other colonial ideals on what we understand as motherhood, how we approach motherhood. And like, let's, let's talk about that. Like what are, you know, how have these colonial silos um, impacted you or like, you know, sort of curated your thought process around motherhood as you, you know, try to work uh, as we all try to work to amplify (laughs) our indigenous motherhood. (laughs) Yeah, I am so glad you brought up this question because I call it like the the Spice Girls theory Mm -hmm. (laughs) where like not just to tell me what you want, what you really, really want, but (laughs) it's really more about like how we just have to be like one identity at a time. Like you are either baby spice or, you know, um, sporty spice or you're one of those things at a time. And I remember after having my first baby going to the grocery store and even like the person checking me out of the grocery store was like, is that all you want, mama? You know, she was calling me mommy, uh, you know, people on the, um, on the, in my doctor's office were calling me mommy and my child was calling me mommy. Like that was just my identity. That's Mm -hmm. all I could be. And that's such a kind of colonial um, characteristic to say this is all you are during this time. When I had brought to my mothering my ancestors' wishes, going back many generations, that knowledge that still lives within me, and also all of the experience that I had brought into this space up until this time I was still um somebody who brought with me like farming practices mm-hmm. and um the, like I was a businesswoman too you know and I also had all of these different hobbies and um interests and um this intellect that I was bringing into the work of motherhood but it wasn't just who I was so another piece that I often think about is that we kind of genderize what it is to be mother. So like the act of mothering does not mean that you had to be born with female body parts. Sure. That's so not true. Like even the birth giving and that first ceremony where you have the water within you and, you know, you're, you're bringing and you're giving life. That is for the many people within your circle. And colonialism tells us that it is like this solo activity that there's all of this like suffering involved in it. Like do it by yourself and, um, you know, go through the pain and then, you know, uh, it just is like you are a one-dimensional. And so I, I really feel so much confusion and also pushback about like how we're supposed to navigate this particular society telling us that the, we're just one thing. Oh, my gosh. I, how about you? Yeah, no, I completely... 
Uh, I can relate so much. So I know I've shared this with you previously, but I actually like didn't want to become a mother prior yeah. to literally like a couple weeks before I got pregnant. Um, and the biggest reason, you know, I was relatively disconnected from my indigeneity, although I had grown up around my culture and my people. Um, I didn't want to be a mom because I had understood it in the society to mean that like, that was my identity. That's all that I was as a person. Those were the types of moms that I somehow was surrounded with. Those were the folks that were influencing uh, my idea of motherhood and that I couldn't be, you know, I'm, I'm an athlete. I'm a rock climber. <laughs> yes. I'm a professional. I'm, I love working. Um, I'm not drawn to this ideal of stay at home 24 hour a day, not working mother, like the, the sort of barefoot and pregnant granola mom, sort of stereotypical, like, <laughs> uh, white mom, the figure that's out there. <laughs> but, um, you know, I wanted to continue my life and I wanted my child or lack thereof, you know, to, to be a part of that. And those weren't the moms that I was seeing. That was not how motherhood was portrayed to me. It was very much like, oh, well, your life is going to be over. And, um, Ugh, you know, God. that, that drew me away from the idea of be wanting to become a mom. And I, and I know simultaneously, like drew my partner, my husband away from wanting to be a parent because we very much loved our life. We wanted yeah. to work. We wanted to be professionals and um, really dive headfirst into the careers that we love. And we were athletes, you know, we enjoyed our lifestyle. Right. And, um, you know, in a moment, <laughs> we decided and we became pregnant. And um, over time, I've had to learn that my life has not changed because I now have a child who is, you know, it's, it's changed for the better in that this child is now a part of my community and uh, is a part of my life and gets to go on adventures with me and gets, and when we figure it out and it takes a community and it's yeah. not this siloed uh, world anymore where now we're parents and we're no longer, um, anything that we used to be. And I see that happen in our colonial society. I, I, I know people who become parents and then they're no longer, and, you know, I speak about rock climbing cause that's the world that I know, but you know, I see them, they're, they're no longer climbing. They're no longer going on adventures. Yeah. They have cut down to only working 10 hours a week and, and maybe they love that and that's great. But, but, you know, that is, not something that I wanted for me. And it took such a long time to deconstruct and decolonize what I understood to be motherhood. And, um, and I think part of me still holds that fear when yeah. I, when I consider, um, you know, that I'm, I'm young and that I, I could have more children and I have that little, you know, and I don't like that I have it, but I have that little nudge in the back of my mind. That's like, Oh, if I, got pregnant again like this could really be the end <laughs> you know <laughs> this could be the end of my climbing career or my professional career or um whatever that might be and and you know this kind of triggered a thought that I had because I know in my last role my last job before I came to the urban native collective I had thoughts of like if I got pregnant I might lose my job which is oh, just God, so yeah. 
such a terrible um, thing to think about. And it's so awful that our society has set up, had set us up to, to either be, okay, you're either a professional in the working Mm -hmm. industry or you're a mom. There's no, there's no between um, absolutely right? and um and there's no support if right. you are choosing to let's say you want to choose to off-ramp and spend some time with your family and spend like full days mm-hmm. doing child rearing which is you know there's there's no kind of way to do that without building in some kind of support system that you kind of have to cobble together based on geography. Mm-hmm. It's like very cost prohibitive and time prohibitive. And it's, and I know not just native and indigenous people struggle with this issue, but it, it feels especially insulting to be here on this land where mm-hmm. we've been doing the practice of nurturing for so many millennia. It's like the slap in the face. Right. We know we're supposed to indigenize our practices and like look around and where and how do we do this by ourselves? And like you said, like making a choice and then also like being in a silo and being just one thing at a time. Yeah. (sighs) It's all like built against us. It really is. You know, I once said on this podcast that we were going to burn it all down, but (laughs) that was a few episodes ago. You know, the other, you know, as I really think about these colonial ideas of motherhood that um, our, our society has constructed itself around for so long and that we have really embedded into um, what we understood, understand motherhood to be, you know, as I mentioned, I um, come from like a mixed race background and um, my mother is native and was raised by a white man. Uh, my grandmother mm-hmm. married a white man and raised all of her kids. And, you know, I unfortunately don't have a relationship with my mother and I haven't for the better half of six plus years, which was very complicated part of me wanting to become a mother, me journeying through motherhood without that piece of my indigenous identity, without a real, you know, loving and compassionate mother to sort of base what my understanding of motherhood was going to be. And so, you know, because of colonization, I was, for lack of a better phrase, abused and mistreated by the person who was supposed to be my mother. And it really complicated, one, me wanting to become a mother, two, understanding my identity as an Indigenous woman and as an Indigenous mother. And um, I had to you know, I had aunties and relatives and things like that. And I've been on this journey myself for many years, understanding who I am as a person, but it, it all played into my feelings around motherhood and my lack of, of support and feeling sort of isolated and alone. And, and, and you said, you know, it really is about community and (laughs) you're not alone. And we want to break down these, silos that tell us that motherhood is isolating you change Mm -hmm. as a person um 
And then, you know, the trauma of how our relatives were raised and all of that, that then trickles down generationally. It's so complicated and, 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 and traumatizing and it all plays into what, uh, who we become as mothers and how we raise our children. And, and I find myself, um, trying to break those generational, um, curses or, you know, the generational (laughs) trauma that, um, has, uh, been a part of me from, um, an indigenous mother who, who is no longer a part of my life. And, and, um, it's been a complicated journey for myself, but I just look at, um, and, and, and think about the, the multifaceted way in which colonization has impacted all of us as native women. Um, not to mention that we're urban native women, so we're not even living on our (laughs) homeland. Uh, it's, uh, it's a complicated, uh, position that we find ourselves in. (laughs) Yeah. Yes. And, you know, to, also embrace, I love how you said this, embrace the fact that we're not creating a new way of parenting. We are unraveling and we are doing this together. We're doing this with support from each other. And we're returning to a way of loving our children and our bodies and our even our sexual health Um, that indigenous communities all over the world have kept alive despite like the long history of colonial oppression, forced assimilation, family separation, heartbreak after heartbreak after heartbreak. And we do recognize the resilience of our indigenous communities in the face of these atrocities. And that For those of you who are listening here who are not Indigenous, the ability to learn from Indigenous wisdom is a privilege. Mm -hmm. It's a privilege that you have the ability to learn with this. The burden that we are talking about, that we are going through right now, and I I share this too, Brie, this pain from the colonial oppression is and the forced assimilation that has happened over a short, relatively short period of time, Mm -hmm. like 400 years, as opposed to the millennia of time that we have this knowledge. And so I, we just kind of have to think of that and hold on to this idea that it's literally in our bones, that we can access this and that we have to support each other to, reach deep inside of us and know that, you know, my parents too were, God, you know, really struggling. Um, and if you're listening, mom or dad, sorry, but the truth hurts. Yeah. Uh, you were terrible and you traumatized me and it made it hard for me to be a, a loving parent. Um, but together we can we can do this. We can unravel. We can. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, and it's hard work and it, it, it happens together. Um, you know, we kind of talked on this a little bit, but, um, you know, people talk about this idea of decolonization and indigenizing and I'm just wondering, you know, we've, we talked about this a little bit, but how do you see that fitting into this motherhood framework into mothering? Like, how do we 
decolonize motherhood. <laughs> um, like, what does that look like for you? And then, you know, what, what might that look like if you were going to share sort of a, a next step of, of sorts to, to our yeah. audience? <laughs> it's complicated. Yeah, it is complicated. I would say, so a friend of mine told me a little while ago, she said, um, my friend, Brittany Shulman, I'll name her out. <laughs> she said, decolonization is for the non-Indigenous people and for mainly for white people. And the indigenizing, that's for us. We get to indigenize. And then as we define what that means for ourselves and our communities, there's definitely like a pathway for all people to engage in that process of indigenizing. Um, But the colonial project that is ongoing and is devastating and is keeping us within these silos and systems, there are some white people that are definitely working on that to help the, the mm-hmm. allies, the co-conspirators, the, uh, the people who are trying to work toward removing these oppressive ways. And so we're really glad to have them on that decolonial practice way. There's even like some people who are working inside these long historical institutions, like religious institutions that have stolen our children and stolen our ability to mother, who are inside of those systems trying to dismantle and make some reparations. So that's kind of hopeful, I feel, for the indigenizing side. There's, you know, let's talk, we're going to get into that a little bit more, I think. Um, but back to the decolonization, one of the things I want to really call out for those of you who are constantly like appropriating our ways of being and then claiming it being like brand new or like you invented it, like whatever you call it, gentle parenting, attachment parenting, conscious parenting, connected parenting, whatever tagline or brand name or like book or program that you put together that you say you invented, it's actually not true. This type of parenting is not true. Indigenous people have always been doing conscious parenting for many millennia and we're not reinventing the wheel. We're not willing to have you claim our ways and then tell people how to practice. We know who we are and we're following the guidance and the continued example of Indigenous communities and leaders because their legacy and leadership empowers all of us to raise children with gentleness and with guidance, with understanding and with trust. So that's I just need to call that out. Yeah, (laughs) please do. I mean, it's so prevalent, um, all of these new ideas, like, right, like these new wave parenting ideas that so-and-so white person, insert white name here, um, you know, invented regarding how to raise your children. And, and you know, I see this and we see this across more than just parenting, but all all sorts of disciplines and industries. and, And these are just, they're, they're these old ways and they're, you know, stolen from indigenous peoples. And, yeah. 
I, I, I'm here for you calling that out. So please yeah. use yes. this space to do that. Cause let's talk about a couple of them really quick. Yes. Let's talk about, okay. So when I was raising babies and it was a little while ago, because next week, one of my oldest son is going to turn 20. My goodness. <laughs> so ah, yikes. Um, anyway, when I was first raising my babies, there was this like new thing called wearing your baby or baby wearing. And uh, like indigenous parents have been wearing their babies since forever. And not only indigenous people, but black people Mm. and um, indigenous people from all over the world and and black people brought baby wearing over here when they were enslaved. And now like white people are like creating products right. and wellness programs. And um, Gwyneth Paltrow on Goop is like, hey, use my baby wearing techniques that I've invented. Ugh. It makes me so furious. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but anyway, we've been, we've been wearing our babies and we have been keeping them close to us. We've been doing this kind of um, consciousness about our child rearing for so, so long. Did you wear your babies free? Yeah, so I did. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I think I'm ashamed to say that I probably like looked at a lot more white people wearing their babies as inspiration yes. to, to wear my baby, but, um, I did. And I, I, I like have the straps and the product and the things that, you yes. know, and, and to me, I'm like, this just, makes sense. But, but I heard in every year that something new is coming out. There's this new product or this new way, even yeah. it's like $150 piece yeah. of fabric. <laughs> <laughs> I saw that once and it was like, are you kidding me? Mm-hmm. And then, you know, I know, I remember that when I was, when my son was an infant, you know, there were, uh, just the one that sticks out the most is like, you know, whether or not they sleep in a crib or co-sleep (laughs) and there's just all this medical, not to mention like how far, you know, removed the medical industry is on really understanding black and indigenous people. Um, But, you know, there's all this new media or all this new science coming out about why your child should sleep where and how long right. they should cry. And, and I just think back on all those things. That oh, caught, the crying, the crying. <laughs> uh, <sighs> and it brings, it, it causes so much stress. I, I still, it does. I think today I'm still stressed out about my child's sleep because of what was like coming in each ear when I was, you know, when I had a baby and, um, it's just incessant. Um, all these, I remember like searching for some kind of formula of not, not formula as in the drink, but like, Mm -hmm. give me some kind of way, like solution, write, write it down (laughs) that would make it so that I could, help my baby because I simply could not allow my baby to cry out for me mm-hmm. and me not respond. I I couldn't do it. My heart wouldn't let it happen. And I was so fortunate to have a husband that let me do that and not let me, oh my God, um, <laughs> <laughs> that was like so super supportive. And then also was like, on board. Mm -hmm. We were just nighttime parents. And 
so knowing that I had to like my body had to produce milk and I also had to be like rested a well-rested person we would take these different shifts when our babies were really little and then as they grew we were able to kind of find this balance and understand like the rhythms and be able to soothe and kind of help our babies to self-soothe relatively quickly with all four of them by not doing some of the methods that we were reading in these books about the kind of crying it out thing. And I just, my heart aches for, you know, how, how come I didn't have instructions? Right. (laughs) And it, you know, what what that crying out and, and I know a lot of parents have, have done this and of course it yeah. you know in many ways it works and and yeah I think and what the, can you do too yeah, right because yeah. if you're desperate too uh, yeah on top of it all yeah but it just you know for me it makes me wonder like did did I have to isolate my child in order to get them to stop what needing the things that they need um yeah. you know we it just, you know, I think part of this is actually really hitting me for the first time in many ways. And, and really a lot of these practices, um, you know, when we think about, oh, well, baby wearing wasn't as popular at one point and now it is. And we, you know, um, yeah. when the child is born, like that skin to skin contact, that was really something, you know, yeah. seven, ten, seven to 10 years ago. Um, when I gave birth to my child, it's like, oh, skin to skin, automatic. And like the fact that that wasn't yeah. a practice in the Western, you know, world um, before that, and that we, we uplift these practices that, you know, I mean, cry it out is like, you leave that baby in that crib to cry oh, for an extended period yeah. of time. And, 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 and you, I, and this sounds really um, intense, but you you isolate them and 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 you leave them to, um, oh, it, it like pains me to say this, but like almost just find that point where they're like, oh, I don't yeah. need you anymore, and that is so giving up, yeah, yeah, yeah and that um, I know. Yeah. it breaks my heart because I know in my life at some point or another, I was probably judgmental of some mother who co-slept with their child or, you know, for whatever crying practice I was, you know, implementing. And, and, and I've had a really complex indigenous journey (laughs) in my adulthood. (laughs) And so I know that I have, um, you know, probably at some point felt like what I was doing was right. And the other person was doing was wrong and just searching in desperation (laughs) as a new mother for a solution to make things a little easier. And the solutions were all around me um, for, for before, since before I was even a mother. And um, I was just so distracted by everything else, all the wrong solutions in my mind. And yeah, um, I wasn't able to focus on what I knew to be the right solutions. And that, yeah. um, it's such a painful thing to realize, um, as I, you know, I don't know, I'll have more children, um, um, whether or not that part of my life journey is over, but it's something that, you know, in, in the event that I do, uh, have more children, my family has more children, like I'm, I'm taking to heart and I'm going to consider, um, 
you know, really listening to my relatives, listening to my ancestors, <laughs> listening to the indigenous <laughs> wisdom, because uh, colonization has just broken our society so much, our indigenous yeah. people so much. And yeah. Um, and it's, it's actually, it's really recent too, mm-hmm. that like this whole, like baby wearing, co-sleeping, gentle parenting, yeah. like um, all of that stuff since, you know, parents have been doing this for thousands of years. And if we compare it to like the invention of like the baby's room and the crib, that was like a post-World War II mm-hmm. economy thing. So post-World War II, when the economy tanked, there was like this um, new wave of of white people getting houses. And they started having these whole separate rooms for their baby in the following economic boom. And that's how babies ended up sleeping away from their parents yeah. for the economic boom, not because it was either um, natural or better for the child or better for the parents. That's not why. It was literally for that economic boom. And it's, you know, a very similar story to this economic boom, similar for like the invention of different formulas. And um, which, of course, if you feed your baby formula, that's great. And it is absolutely a perfectly healthy choice. And we're so grateful that we have good formula now. But for many years, it was very much pushed on mothers as a better choice for their babies to have like formula feeding, kind of like the way that um, even in my own lifetime, things like sugar and processed foods and canned foods were pushed on families as the nutritional choice and like stop, stop growing food in your own backyard. That's a bad thing to do. You really need to have the vitamins enhancements in the Cheerios and in the canned foods and the, the locked in nutrition in this frozen food. (laughs) My word, you wouldn't even believe what they were trying to sell us back in the 70s and 80s. And we're still living with that nutritional and care and all of those practices, which literally have happened in my own lifetime, watching us go from like um, just these, I mean, you'd have to be a miracle to have gone through um, this colonial um, process and not have been affected. Sure. So, Ugh. yeah. Yeah, it's it's wild to me when we think about um, just past decades, <laughs> you know, even just yeah. the last 100 years and how, um, you know, parenting and care and, and, and responsibility and what we're feeding our children and, and yeah. how we care for our children and how much has been shoved down our throats. And it's very complicated and, and, and it and confusing. And I think that is um, something that we carry for longer than just when we are raising our children in our homes. But um, it really, it really changes us and impacts us. And um, right. 
Yeah. I don't know. I'm, I guess in some ways grateful that I raised my child when I did, but in many ways, like it's, it's sort of the same different sides of the same coin, right? You know, it's sure our society is claiming all of these, um, indigenous knowledge systems and in many different industries as they're claiming it as their own. It's this new practice, whether we're talking about parenting, whether we're talking about food or conservation or, or whatever we might be talking about. Um, there's, um, yeah, you know, I'm grateful that some of these practices are, (laughs) you know, here for me and my generation, but, um, you know, what I, what I can't stand for and what I do call out is like that stole those stolen practices. <laughs> like yeah. these are indigenous practices that we, I, know. Eh, yeah. I don't know. It's- and for ourselves. And when we think about indigenizing motherhood and our new indigenous practice and building the community that we need, we can center that around that fact that we know that Indigenous motherhood is a sacred responsibility, and it requires us to be patient, compassionate, attentive to the needs of our babies and our children and our bodies. And we, we have to create space where they feel loved and supported and where they can grow and develop into the Indigenous, confident people we know they can yes. be. Uh, I love that so much. And, and I know, you know, we are women living in, you know, urban native, urban environments. I mean, you you live in somewhat of a small township or or small town, kind of a little bit further Uh North of Cincinnati, but for all intents and purposes, we live in, in cities and urban centers. And, um, you know, I think something that's really a hot topic this week because there was this country singer who came to Cincinnati um, that, you know, wrote this song, um, Try That in a Small Town. You know, I think about our responsibility um, as as, as mothers. Yes, I want to talk about it. And I want to, you know, and I and I find this parallel between like what you said about our community, uh, raising loving, caring people in as urban natives who are removed from our homeland, who are, you know, we know that um, many urban natives live in urban centers, but also many live in small towns. And yeah, what, what I mean, let's talk about this. I have so many let's, thoughts, but I, let you go first. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> yeah, let's, let's talk, talk about this this dude. I'd never even heard his name before. He wrote this song, this pro-racist, pro-lynching song uh, called Try That in a Small Town. Never even heard his name. He is just like dog whistling all over the place. He's very outspoken. He actually performed in Cincinnati last week. He was like saying these different things about you know, he's anti-woke and, and like you said, so many indigenous people are literally from small towns. That's typically our reservations, our small towns. And even when we're called urban natives, 
that doesn't mean that we are all in big cities. What that means is we don't live on the reservation. Mm -hmm. And what we know right now is about 78% of all um, Native people don't live on the reservation, and they primarily live in rural areas. So I just, I got to say, this guy got under my skin so freaking much with this um, meritless and dangerous um, take on on trying this in a small town. It really feeds into that broader narrative of like, if you do something bad, here's a threat. Mm-hmm. If you do something that I think is not like just calm and and um, then then I'm going to threaten you with violence and your violence you know your perceived violence from th- from this guy's perspective he's seeing things like protests for 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 black lives and he's seeing that as just straight up violent mm-hmm. and he's just like threatening to um yeah with this hyper masculine um response and it really is a disgrace it's a disgrace. It is. And I've, and I've read, you know, into a little bit of, of his responses and how he's just so proud to be an American. He wants, you know, America to be what it used to be. And, and honestly, I don't know what that means. I mean, I understand that to mean that people who want, you know, Donald Trump had his whole make America great again. And I'm like, well, what is the again? Help me understand what the again is. Are you saying that you you want us to stop (laughs) protesting for clean water or our lives? You want to go back to when, you know, when black and brown and indigenous people and queer people and trans people didn't fight for their existence? Like, help me understand what the again is, like what you're trying to go back to, because, you know, our country, (laughs) this country that we're here trying to reclaim motherhood and and raise our children to be wonderful, caring, loving, um, successful, probably, (laughs) people you know, what are we trying, what are, what are these claims, uh, that people want to go back to? Um, I mean, because it's not an America that was ever for us, for indigenous people, for black people. Um, I mean, America was so like, so much of it was, was built on the backs of black slaves and the stolen land taken from native people. And, and I just, you know, those people are, are, over many years are, are finding their voice, are standing up and saying, we no longer accept this horridness of American history. And we have in the same breath, these respected uh, country music singers who get, yes. who are getting away with writing songs about this. And it, and, and the thing that really, really gets me is that it's all become quote unquote, politicized, right? Our existence, Uh um, you know, wanting clean water and wanting um, freedom over how, what we do with our bodies and how we, how we birth and, and, and what we, when you consider the reproductive rights that we as women um, have in our society, like everything. Basic healthcare. Absolutely. um, You know, 
what is this? What us? What? <laughs> and, uh, it's so frustrating. He said in one of his interviews, he said that he felt like a small town refers to like this feeling of community that he had where people took care of each other regardless of their differences or their beliefs. But that is not, that is not what we need to be focused on because mm-hmm. people who are in community don't believe that other people are less than. That is not something that we can just pass off as a quote belief. Right. And that's where we have to call it out. You are not my community if you believe that your privilege means that you don't have to work on Mm anti-racism. I'm sorry, but we talked about that at the beginning of how we, of, of this conversation, we said that decolonization is the job of those who are benefiting from current colonization. It is the job of these guys who make these music videos and the country Western singers and anybody who's not black and indigenous, who is not marginalized. It is literally their job to dismantle these colonial systems that oppress people. And that is not, if the, if you're not doing it, you are not community. Yeah. And so you don't have a small town. You just have a pretend environment where you think that everybody gets along and they like each other regardless of your beliefs. That's false. Right. Whoever you grew up with in your small town, Mr. Aldean, <laughs> was not your friend, okay? Seriously. <laughs> I don't care if you think you had Black friends. They were not your friend because that is a two-way street, mister. And you have got to support anti-racism in order to actually be a part of a community. Period. Yeah. And uh, I mean, and and this is the community that we're talking about. This is the community yeah. that we as Indigenous mothers, you know, we've surrounded ourselves with. These are who we are inf- uh, influencing. This, these are the people that are influencing influencing us as we make this journey into motherhood, as we raise these communities. I mean, we are raising up these communities of people and this is the messages that are being put out there. Um, It just, it breaks my heart and it's wrong and it needs to be called out. And I think that us as mothers, indigenous mothers, like it is a place where we can say like, this is wrong and and this is why. And why it matters so much that we... It really, really does. And we we as Indigenous mothers from the day our babies take their first breath, we cannot accept... I, I don't know about you, but for me, like the moment my son was born and I became that mother, I always say I felt like I gave birth to my own heart. Hmm. I, and everything that came with that and so I, I won't ever again accept colorblindness mm-hmm. or, or these excuses of, of proximity where people say, oh, yeah, my, my friend is Indigenous, so therefore I can speak on behalf of or I can't be racist. I also, I won't accept avoidance. I won't, I will not accept people avoiding the topic of race. The people that say, oh gosh, if we just stop talking about it, it will go away. That's false. I won't accept it. I also won't accept silence. I am not willing 
to be around people anymore that sit, stay silent when other people are making these kinds of racist comments or jokes or songs. I, I can't, I can't stand by you if you're going to stay silent. But instead, I want people who are willing to do the work in the community who are willing to be bring awareness, do like deep listening, be a part of educating ourselves on what the disease of white supremacy is and not expecting Indigenous and Black people to do the educating. And then I want people who are willing to um, speak out, do the activism, do incorporate it into your life in all areas of your life, in your motherhood, in your professional life. Um, do it. I don't care if you just do it on social media. That's like something. <laughs> and I, I want people in my life and in my child's life who are willing to do anti-racist steps. Yeah, absolutely. That's the only way that we can decolonize and that we can create an environment where Indigenous ways of knowing and knowledge can be for everyone. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that's so good. Thank you so much, Dawn. Um, <laughs> you know, I've thought about this for a little while of like, you know, how, you know, how I want to wrap up some of these episodes and thought about like, you know, what is something that is, is true over, over all of our episodes and this podcast. And I think that, you know, what I want to ask to kind of close out our conversation is what is, is one thing that you want, you know, the, the first thing that comes to your mind that you want white people to understand about, about you, about this community, about urban natives, you know, our podcast is, is life on the margins and urban native experience, but we are amplifying um, and have amplified the voices of all marginalized communities. But what is yeah. one thing you want white people to understand? Um, yeah. Yes, the one thing I want white people to understand is that all of our motherhood and parental, our relationship, our mental health issues stem, stem from colonialism. <laughs> Every single toxic and dysfunctional issue that we ourselves, that our family systems, that our communities are facing right now derives and stems from colonialism. And even people who came here from Europe suffered from colonialism and imperialism. And that, yes, we weren't perfect prior to colonization, but we knew how to hold our laws as priorities and we knew how to relate to each other. And we knew how to care for our land. And we knew how to care for our our um life and our, our children and our water. And we knew the principles of uh, being a good person. So I want us all together to blame colonialism. Yeah. <laughs> Just blame it. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Just join us, blame colonialism. And then you can move on from there to take some self-responsibility to make like appropriate choices and shifts in your own life. But join me. Blame colonialism. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Uh, yes, 
Let's do it together. Well, Don, yeah. Don thank you so much. This conversation was so wonderful. Your insight, um, your perspective. I'm so grateful that you are here to join us. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. This episode was brought to you by the support of our entire community. We could not do this without you, and we are so grateful for every single one of the Indigenous community members that are listening in. Um, We hope that you enjoy this episode, and we hope that you go out and share our podcast with everyone that you know. Uh, Please like, subscribe, share, and follow us on social media at Urban Native Collective. We've also launched our brand new website, urbannativecollective.org, where you can find out so much more about what our organization is doing and donate to our cause. We're so grateful for all of you. And until next time, talk to you later.